0: Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. In this episode, I talk to Thibaut Clement, the co-founder and CEO of Loomly, a SaaS platform that helps marketing teams to streamline their social media communication and improve how they collaborate. In 2015, Thibault and his wife, Noemi, were running an advertising agency. They were working with clients in France and the US, but collaborating with them was time-consuming and inefficient. Nearly everything was done using spreadsheets. Eventually, one day, Thibault decided to build a software tool to make their lives easier. He was a self-taught Ruby on Rails developer, so he had enough knowledge to build something. The first version of what later became Loomly took Tebow a few months to build, but it didn't do much and was pretty basic. All people could do was upload an image, add some text, and see a mock-up of what the post would look like on social media. But the tool helped them streamline how they collaborated with clients, and their clients loved the tool, even though it didn't do much. So in 2016, they launched it as a product and two months later had their first paying customer. Today, Loomly generates north of $5 million in annual recurring revenue, and is used by over 7,000 marketing teams around the world. In this interview, we talk about how Tebow and Noemi turned their little tool into a multiple seven-figure SaaS business, why they charged for the product from day one, even though it had very limited functionality, how they differentiate their product and try to stand out in a very crowded market and why launching a referral program turned out to be a bad idea and what they learned from that. We also talk about how they use quick feedback loops to quickly and continuously improve their product and how that's helped them to grow the business. So I hope you enjoy it. Thibaut, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Omar. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Do you have a quote that you can share with us, something that inspires or motivates you or, or just gets you out of bed every day?
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact. Uh, so, like, the way I usually, like, think about it is that, you know, nothing beats perseverance. But, like, the actual, like, the true quote, the, the one, the original one is actually nothing in this world can take the place of persistence from Mr. Coolidge. And, and you know, I think that, uh, you know, having persistence or perseverance or however you want to call it is 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 very, very important when you decide to start a business. So that's something I try to remember every morning.
0: Awesome. So tell us about Loomly. What does the product do? Who is it for? And what's the main problem that you're helping to solve?
1: Yeah. So Loomly is is what we call a brand success platform. And what it does is that it helps marketing teams streamline their collaboration to produce content and build their brand online and the main problem that we see these days and and i'm not even talking about the current context with the the pandemic is that uh, you know how as a team as a brand do you go from a blank page to a consistent story that you are going to tell on social media and on all your digital channels this is the problem that we are trying to solve and of course you know with with the pandemic uh, this is something that has skyrocketed for two reasons one you know we have seen more and more smaller businesses who were not operating online and who had to shift online due to many of the challenges that we are all going through and so usually the first thing they do is they open up a website or or an online store and so the second thing they do is trying to promote it and so this is where you know bloomly can help that's kind of the first thing and the second thing that we have noticed is that it's more on, on the larger organizations where, you know, we had all these great marketing teams and even better, all those great cross functional teams that were used to collaborating, seeing each other in the meeting room, uh, and all of a sudden, everyone is working from home. And so they have to find a way to collaborate online. So this is what Lonely does. You know, it helps you create your content, it helps you preview it, and so, you know, before. Any piece of content goes online, you can see what it looks like. You can assign it to one person in your team get their feedback and get their approval so that, you know, everything that goes out is typo free, it's on brand, it's compliant. And so, you know, you have the peace of mind and, and, and that also helps you, like I was saying, build a consistent brand story over time. Awesome. So
0: let's just give folks a sense of the the size of the business, like how much are you doing in revenue at the moment?
1: I don't know when this show is going to air, but we are very, very close to 5 million dollars in ARR, uh, and we're growing about 100% per year. Uh, that's what we've been doing wow. the past two years, and that's what we expect to do this year as well. And uh, how many customers do you have? Uh, we currently serve over uh, 7,000 marketing teams around the world.
0: And how big is the team?
1: We're just seven persons. So we are a, a very small team of highly efficient people. That's how we like to think about ourselves. I was
0: very surprised about that when I heard that number, because for the size of the business that you are now, I would have expected the team to be at least three, four times as as big. So I want to kind of dig into that because you know there there's um, some lessons that we can talk about in terms of hiring, but also I think just in terms of learning about you know, how, how to how to operate a lean and mean machine, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a good point. I think, you know, as, like just to set the context, something that we, that, you know, we, we need to know is that we have been a distributed team and we have been working remotely since day one. Again, even before the pandemic. So, you know that has kind of forced us to always work asynchronously to limit meetings and these kind of things. And so this is, you know, now this is in our DNA and it turns out that this actually is a huge source of productivity when, you know, everyone can work asynchronously. You don't need to be uh, in the same room or even in the same video call at the same time. Uh, It's just, you know, much more productive so i believe this is one of the things that you know we've been doing differently for a long time and the other thing is we also like to spend a lot of time developing repeatable processes so you know when we do something we like to think about you know how can we do it once and then once we know how to do it once like how do we scale it up from there an example of that is that we have no sales force so we do not have any sales representative we never go out you know and and knock on on the door and, and ask someone if they want to buy the product that's not how we've built our marketing and so as soon as you kind of remove the sales force you are already you know kind of decreasing the correlation between your revenue and the size of your team uh, that's one of the just you know the scalability aspects of what we do and I believe that the, the last thing probably that is related to operating a business uh, this way is that we have never, and I hope that we will never evaluated our success or measured our success based on headcounts. Uh, we have always focused on the growth of the business, the satisfaction of the customers. You know, we've never used uh, you know the size of the team as as a vanity metric. So I believe this is also kind of you know informing the decisions that we make.
0: So you said seven people. So there's you and Noemi, your co-founder and wife. Yeah. And then what what do the other five people do? are they support developers
1: what yeah so the company is kind of split into one half so actually three engineers work you know on on building the product and then two other people those are wonderful persons are actually working on, on support and customer success and helping you know customers with any kind of questions they may have
0: awesome so the company was founded in 2016. yes let's talk about how you came up with the idea for this business where did that start
1: so i've been working with noemi my suppose for uh, over nine years now and Loomly is actually the fourth company that we are building together so prior to building Loomly, we were actually managing an advertising agency and we were operating both in france where our largest client was l'oreal we were managing five brands for them online and here in the us and we were mainly working with startups, you know, looking for growth and how to scale and how to acquire more users. But there was one process that was common to all those customers, which was the collaboration that we were having with them. Everything was going through Excel spreadsheets, uh, what we call editorial calendars, where, you know, we were basically listing series of posts to go on social media and blogs and in the media and, you know, with the copy and the images. And we were Asking for their approval and their feedback before we could actually execute on those pieces of content. And that was a nightmare. As you may imagine, you know, Excel or spreadsheets are great for numbers, for PL, not so great for content and assets and, and collaboration. So uh, we looked up, you know, what we could do to streamline the process, and we could only find two types of solutions: generic project management software on the one hand, which was great for collaboration, not great for publishing. And on the other hand, we were finding, you know, social media schedulers that were great for publishing, but not great for collaboration. So, you know, uh, we kind of took the matter in our own hands. I'm not an engineer. I just learned everything on my own. And that was actually back in 2015. And I built a prototype and we started using it with our product, with our clients. Sorry. We did not tell them it was our own product because we wanted some honest feedback. And it turns out that they liked it uh, very much. I will always remember that one of our clients from the agency actually told us after trying the product, he said, if we have to go back to Excel, you are fired. So we are like, okay, you know, maybe maybe there is something here. And then, like you said, early 2016, we opened up the platform in public beta. And from there, it just uh, you know got out of control, but uh, in the right direction.
0: <laughs> so tell me about like just the at a high level, like the tech stack, what what did you use to build this sort of first version of the product and, and how long did it take you to put it together initially?
1: So I use Ruby on Rails. You know, my first commit uh, was in, uh, on August 15, 2015, and I had a prototype up and running by December that we started using with our clients uh, early January.
0: So roughly it was like how many...
1: A couple of months, you know, I would say, I would say like four four or five months. And I was doing that, you know, on the side. So by day I was working in the agency, by night I was, I was programming. So busy weeks.
0: Were you already like coding and just as, as a hobby or something, or, or did you actually, was that something new that you learned in terms of how to, how to code with Ruby and learn learn about for Rails when you decided to build this, this
1: tool? I had been playing around with HTML and CSS and JavaScript for years, maybe five, five years, something like that. And I had picked up Ruby on Rails in a different context, and I was kind of pretty amazed by this framework and how it helps you put together some MVPs in such an efficient way, all with the elegance of the Ruby language. So it was, it was pretty impressive. But to answer your question, uh, it was kind of you know, uh, I learned on my own in a different context. And so then I kind of used, uh, that knowledge to build the tool that I needed. And
0: and that first version of the product, what did it do? Because Not I'm, much. yeah, I'm sure there was like, you know, a, a thousand things you wanted it to do, but yeah. probably it just started with a very few, few small number of things. What was, what was that?
1: Very few things, uh, nothing compared to today. When I started, when I built this first version, it was probably one of the bo- the most basic crowd applications you can think about. What it was doing is it was allowing some users to upload, you know, text and images to the platform. And, you know, the platform would turn those into mockups of what the post would look like on social media. So you would, you know, upload the copy of your post, an image, and then it would kind of generate a Facebook post for you. And it would just, it would show it to you. And then, you know, you would take the link of that post on on the platform, not on Facebook, on the platform, and you would be able to send it to someone uh, so that, you know, they could review it and they could leave comments on it to tell you what to change or what they liked and approve it. And that was it. That was the only thing the platform was doing because remember, like I mentioned, what we were trying to do was replace the spreadsheets. And so we didn't have any, you know, Uh, asset management features like we have now. We didn't have any publishing features like we have now. We didn't have any interactions management system where you can respond to comments and things like that. And we, of course, didn't have any kind of analytics features like, again, we have now. But, you know, once we opened up this platform in beta to some, you know, social media marketing professionals, the feedback was essentially I've been looking for that for 10 years. I've tried 10 products and none are doing that. And so that's when we kind of realized that, you know, even though it was basic, even though it was much more simple than everything else on the market, which was connections with APIs and, and tons of things we didn't even know how to do, like, you know, it was kind of addressing a pain point.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting. Many founders go into a market they see existing products and sort of mentally set a very high bar on what they have to launch with and that kind of creates a lot of unnecessary pressure and stress and also you sort of force yourself when you think like that to have you know like one, two year sort of development roadmap before you can get something done. There's almost this reluctance in terms of if my product doesn't do enough, people aren't going to take it seriously. But I think this is a really good example that if you figure out that one thing and it doesn't have to be, you know, some life-changing thing that people haven't seen before, but it just takes a pain away and makes people's lives Just that little bit easier. That's such a beautiful place to start.
1: It's 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 so funny that you say that because a couple of hours ago I just saw a tweet from one of our investors. So like I I mentioned to you, I'm I'm French, and so this investor is French as well, and he was he, he invests in a lot of startups, and he was basically you know kind of saying that you know kind of the the main I would say downside of French engineered products is that they have so many features because French engineers are so brilliant and they can basically build anything. So the French engineered products have so many features that at the end of the day you don't even know what they're doing. And so it's it's exactly what you say, you know, and so in that case, you know, uh, the constraint having, I would say, you know, some I would say basic engineering skills kind of drove us to focus on what we could achieve and actually solving the problem that we had.
0: When you put this beta out there and started letting other people use it, did you charge for the product? Did you let them use it for free? What was the approach that you took to get this out there in front of people and and sort of validate it?
1: We charged for the product, not much. Uh, it was starting at $12 per month. That was like four or five years ago. And there was like a two months free trial. Our goal was uh, to see, one, if people were interested in using the product, and two, if they were interested in paying for the product. Uh, We figured that if we made it free, maybe, you know, we would be having an answer to the first question. But for sure, not to the second question. So from the start, we decided to make it a paying platform because it was kind of part of the customer development effort.
0: How did you find those initial beta users? Were these people that you knew or, or did you? how did you get the word out?
1: Well... You know, we kind of uh, come from that industry, right? We come from the industry of digital marketing professionals, social media marketing professionals. And so uh, we were in all those groups and we had all those friends who all kind of knew, you know, mainly Noemi, because she's the one doing this uh, this networking part. So she started uh, sharing it with the communities that she was a part of. And that's how we started getting a uh, lot of feedback. Uh, because again, we know and we knew these persons were exactly in the target audience.
0: Okay, so you've got the these beta users. You You start to collect some feedback. How long did it take you to get to the point where you felt like this is... A business this is not just a side project
1: so we got the you know we opened up in february 2016 we got the first paying customers two months later because there was a two-month free trial so it was actually you know it was kind of the the, the like the, the smallest amount of time we could hope to get a paying customer and then you know the feedback although again the product was very simple and not the sexiest platform you may have seen feedback was very you know kept coming interest kept coming and then about that time which what is it? kind of interesting is that you know we had some entrepreneurs like much more seasoned than we are uh, some entrepreneurs who you know you know, that we knew and they were kind of asking what we were working on and so we mentioned it to them and so we showed it to them and then you know they were like, Yeah, you should raise money and like we can help. And and then we were like, okay, so it seems like there is a lot of demand for <laughs> for the product. Uh, it looks like, you know, we have people who are interested in, in, in helping us to put, you know, some resources behind the product. So we kind of, you know, put two and two together. And, and that's when we decided, you know, yes, let's, let's let's do it. Because if we have identified a pain point in an audience, and now we have the resources to serve that audience and solve their the pain point, then, you know, uh, if you're an entrepreneur, like, you cannot say no to that.
0: <laughs> Did you keep the um, agency Running was were you splitting your time between the two businesses?
1: I stopped working on the agency around September two thousand sixteen, so that was about a year after I wrote the first line of code. Uh, that gives you an idea. Uh, Noemi kind of kept managing many aspects of it. I, I was kind of supporting her, but you know we kind of had split the responsibilities. And then you know she uh, kind of joined me full time uh, the following year. So that's kind of how it
0: happened. So, using your network and the people you know and and getting people to try the product, it's not a lot of money, twelve dollars a month, a very generous trial of two months, yeah, but we also know that when you're targeting marketers, that market is is filled like it's it's almost overwhelming when you look at like tools that marketers can use so how did you figure out what your niche was how to stand out in that market and to sort of get attention people's attention was that a difficult thing to do or just by leading with this one problem you were finding that that was an easy way for people to get it and start you know have some interest and start using the product
1: well i think there are a couple of um you know of things you know that kind of helped us and and played in our favor the first thing is that like you say there are many 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 tools targeting marketers but the way we think about it and the way it turned out to be is that usually if there is competition uh you know if there is supply it's because there is a market it's because there is demand and so in our specific case on the social media marketing segment, it turns out that there had been, and there still have many you know other players, most of them that have been here for a longer period of time than, than, than we have. and they actually they are much bigger than we are between 100 and a 1, thousand times bigger than we are. And you know so they are doing many things. And they may not be able to kind of, you know, respond with the same speed as we do to the customer requests. And so the reason why and the way it has played in our favor is because those other players have kind of evangelized, they have helped the market get used to using tools. So when we arrived on the market, we didn't have to convince people that they needed a tool they already knew they needed a tool and because satisfaction was not as high as it could be on the market uh, many people were looking for other solutions and on top of that because the pain point that we had identified was not yet kind of satisfied and 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 covered it kind of you know helped us a lot because all of a sudden we're not like just you know like you know like a small startup going after like a market that is undefined and where you have to convince everyone to change the way they work. No, we were on this huge market that is, you know, still to this day between, depending on the studies that you look at, between you know 35 and 50 billion dollars a year, growing 16 to 18 percent in in compounded annual growth rates. So it's huge, it's growing fast, and it's major. And so all of a sudden we are here, and we have a solution that no one is kind of offering. We are pouring our souls into making sure that people who try the product are happy. And if they're not happy, how we can make them happier. And so, you know, the last thing is we also try to design the product in a very user-friendly way. And not because we are great designers. I'm not a designer. I built the first UX. And if you still look at how it looks, it's still the same layout. It's just it's nicer, but it's the same layout. And the reason why it was user-friendly is because we were the first users of the product. And so that you know triggered a lot of comments from users saying, yes, that's simple. That makes sense. That's how it should work. And so when you combine that, like a major and mature market that is growing fast, where there is some lack of satisfaction, you combine it with a lot of you know attention to support and customer service and you go after that market with a user-friendly product, then all of a sudden, you know, what you have to do is just make sure that people start to hear about yourself. And, you know, that's where content and word of mouth is kind of uh, coming into play.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about content. I know that's been one of the the key ways that you've, you've grown this business. But before that, I want to talk a little bit about just how you sort of think about prioritizing features, especially in those early days as well because this is quite a common i think scenario where you solve a small problem you get this product out in front of the market people start using it they love it they ex- they get excited and then the feedback comes in with it would be great if you could add these 1000 features to make this do this and, and 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 basically turn it into some you know huge monster yeah. of a product so which is great to get that feedback but then how do you decide what to work on so what was your experience? Did you also find that you were getting a lot of this kind of feedback? And then how did you sort of decide what was the next thing you were gonna build on
1: this? I think there are two parts to my answer. I'll try to keep it short, but, but there are two parts. The first part is when we started, I was you know on my desk, on the other side of the desk was Noemi, my, my spouse and my co-founder. I was building the product, pushing the commits. She was trying it giving me some feedback, I would make modifications, and we would do that over and over again. So the feedback loop was, you know, small and fast, and it allows us, you know, it allowed us, at least it allowed me to make sure I was building something that she could use. And so very quickly, we realized there was a lot of power, you know, in, in, in this kind of feedback loop and collaboration. And so Very, very early on, one of the main things that we try to do is start thinking about how can we keep that feedback loop? How can we keep, you know, uh, this flow of ideas between the users and the developers? How can we keep that and how can we scale that? And I'm actually very, very proud of the fact that we have been able to, to, to do that because today, you know, I'm no longer the one who is actually building the features. Noemi is far from being being the only person to use the product. But, you know, we have built processes. We speak with over 200 customers every single day. And so they give us feedback. They tell us, you know, they say, hey, there is a bug here. Or, hey, it would be really nice if we could, you know, build this feature. Or, hey, I don't understand how to do that. Can you maybe you know make the ux a bit better or the ui a bit better and so we take all of that every single interaction with every single customer we have some takeaways from those conversations, and we have a roadmap and we just very very simply we basically you know increment counters with the number of of requests for a given feature and then based on that you know we are able to see what is the most frequently requested features or improvements, and, and that's how we work on those. That's the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer, and actually complements it, is that when you have so many data points, when you, ha- when you are lucky to have so many people using your product and so many people actually being willing to tell you what they think, well, then, what happens is kind of you know like when you look at an impressionist uh, painting, you know it's all those little touches of paint. So when you look at them individually, you're like, I don't understand what it is. But if you take a step back, you see the full picture. It's exactly the same thing with that. Once you get two hundred pieces of feedback per day, then you know you take a step back, you look at the roadmap, and you're like, okay, this is where we are going. And like the big picture, like the big vision, where you know you you see your product going becomes crystal clear. And from there, once you have that big picture, then you know you can decide which items of the roadmap you know make more sense and contribute more to the actual big picture. So these two things really work hand in hand, you know, at the macro and micro level.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about it. And and in many ways, it's like. You're not just taking feature requests. You're enabling your customers to basically co-develop the vision of the product with you.
1: Absolutely, yes. The vision, the features, everything. And and actually, you know, if you go to our blog and you go to the Loomly news section where we introduce new features, you will see that in every single feature announcement at the bottom of the post, there is like a big thank you note to all the users who actually uh, contributed to this feature and you know, kind of told us that that was needed. And so, nice. yes, it's just, you know, it's just extremely necessary. It's extremely helpful. And, you know, I, I actually like to say that I'm, I'm far from being a visionary. I'm just someone who listens and just, I just try to, to deliver on what I'm being asked. So it's it's purely execution.
0: So let's talk about content and how you've used that to to grow the business. Maybe just start by telling us, like, how how has your content marketing strategy contributed to the growth of the business? How significant has that been?
1: Again, we come from you know a digital marketing and advertising background, so producing content, you know, driving growth online is is something we we had been doing for a couple of years even before starting Loomly. and so you know, content what what amazes me is you know how content is is growing with the business even when the, the the business is growing extremely fast we are growing about 100% per year that's a lot and so we see that you know content is 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 growing along that pace even when we keep adding new channels to the mix uh, you know we keep you know if we do pr if we do uh, AdWords, if we do other things, like what is amazing is how content keeps, you know, maintaining its share, if not increasing, in the mix uh, while we are growing. And so I think this is, you know, very impressive because when you are growing at that rate, it's very probable that your, you know, your mix is going to evolve because maybe some channels are going to kind of, you know, plateau, and you're going to have to complement them. With other channels. That has not been the case with content, and I think it's very interesting.
0: So when you say that content has been growing, are you talking about the amount of organic search traffic you're getting through content, the volume of content that you're creating, or both?
1: The volume of business that is driven by content.
0: Correct. And is that mostly coming through organic search?
1: On the content side, yes. Uh, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah. So if you're sort of... Building a content strategy, and you you want to reach marketers, you kind of have a few problems in the way, right? Like you know, like these companies like HubSpot who actually do a really good job and and spend yeah. a lot of you know money and 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 kind of resources in creating this content, and no matter what you're looking for, marketing related, HubSpot will show up, you know, somewhere high up on the results page. So. That obviously is is going to be a challenge in terms of how do you create content which is competitive, which ranks well, which stands out, and so on. What did you do to, to sort of make that happen, to get attention, and, and to make this content be as effective as possible for you?
1: Okay, yeah. The answer is probably going to be very boring so i i'm sorry <laughs> but but um so the first thing is you know we, we just discussed like the vision and understanding you know where you're going and so once you know that you understand what are the main high level pain points of your audience for us it's one how to build a brand two how to collaborate as a marketing team that's basically what we do because that's what our customers need once you know that, it's, you know, it's pretty easy to have a different take on you know, all the marketing topics because you know, we're not necessarily saying, hey, how to like, you know, hack algorithms to like, earn followers. That's, that's not something we do. We just never do that because we are all about helping our customers create quality content, building their brand, telling their story. And so it allows us to have a very unique angle on the topic that people are searching and so this is very important because it kind of sends you to one uh like you know it kind of leads you sorry to kind of the main things that seo is about now especially more in 2021 than, than before which is intent you know it's people are like it's very rare these days that people are looking for actual keywords you know sometimes they do but what they are looking for is answers to their questions. And so once once you have your vision, you know what people are struggling with, and you know how to explain things through that perspective, then you know you have chances of surfacing in such engines in a very different way. So that's number one, uh, and it kind of helps us to not go head to head with HubSpot, for instance. And the other thing is uh, again, because we have this vision, we understand the pain points. Then we kind of think out of the box, and we always try to think about not only just blog posts, but also resources that you know can help our users and our customers. And so this you know is something that we refresh all the time. Sometimes you know it's it's uh, it's a quiz to evaluate their own practices in their company, so that you know they they have some. Uh, some cues about how to you know improve productivity as a team or build a brand sometimes it's about you know creating resources like a dictionary or things like that and so again once you have this big vision everything kind of makes sense because you know what you're trying to achieve and you know which pain points you're trying to relieve
0: how how frequently were you were you creating content was it like you know something once a week every day like what was that sort of frequency and then were you doing anything in terms of like you know trying to do link building or or you know or was it just a matter of publishing it and and just you know promoting it through social media channels and whatever? So what was the general kind of approach you took there?
1: yeah, we We publish consistently so that you know our users and audience kind of know what to expect. Uh, We distribute it through our channels, social media, of course, our newsletter as well. And then, you know, because, you know, Bloomly is growing and the brand is starting to, you know, stand out and we have those people, you know, who are, seem to be pretty happy about, you know, what we do, then, you know, the brand kind of drives word of mouth. And so that kind of, you know, makes other people talk about you, write articles about you and, and, you know. Then this is how you get the links. We 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 don't do like we at at some point we have tried to do some outreach to build backlinks, and it didn't work well uh, for us. I know some some companies are extremely successful at that. For instance, Canva is like they are a machine. They are impressive. They are extremely successful, and they do it very very well. It just didn't work for us.
0: Yeah, I get about ten emails of like that every day.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why we don't do it. Yeah,
0: it's uh, after a while you just kind of just you just numb out. You yeah. don't pay attention to it.
1: I, I don't want you to hear about Loomly that way. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want you to, you know, because then down the road, if you if you come to our website and you're like, oh yeah, there was a guy who kind of reached out to me like in my inbox. He he did some call outreach. Oh yeah, maybe I'll just go to another website. Uh, that's not what I want.
0: Yeah, yeah. So content worked really well and it's continuing to work well. And we we talked about how building the product in the right way and and being really deliberate and thoughtful about how you collect feedback from your customers and then use that to guide the the development, short-term and long-term development. One of the things that you and I were talking about before we started recording was like referral programs. And I, I hear this a lot with uh, a lot of early stage founders who are like very keen to start a referral program as soon as possible because they feel it's a great way to, to sort of, you know, get, get early traction, but that didn't work for you. Right. So what, what happened with, what was your experience?
1: Yeah. So, you know, when, when you are in the SaaS SaaS you know, environment, there is always something that, that comes in, in, I wouldn't say that haunts you, but something that you know you have to play by, and it's the famous LTV over CAC ratio. Or although you know I don't really agree with that, and I, I explained in a very lengthy article on me, Medium why you know you have to to look at this in a very particular light for it to make sense. But anyway, so you know that uh, you know you, you basically have to keep your um, your cost of acquisition to one third of of how much uh, a customer is going to 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 generate for you in terms of revenue. You know that. So then you start looking at, you know, your different channels and you're like, oh yeah, I'm spending a lot of money on them. I don't really know how, how much, you know, revenue they're generating. And then, you know, someone, you know, is going to talk to you about a referral program. Maybe it's a cool growth hacking blog article. Maybe it's one of your investors. Maybe it's a, a fellow CEO who is telling you, yeah, this is great. And so you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I'm going to pay my users who already know the product and I'm going to you know give them a cut of the revenue they generate so that you know I pay per action per conversion so that you know I don't waste my money and that's uh, that's great and you know like we like we say usually in advertising uh, half of the money is wasted but we don't we don't know which half so that's kind of the the problem so you know, so you're like, yeah, the, like the referral program is a great idea. So we start, we implement it, we, we design it the best we can. We have landing pages for um, each referral person. And then it turned out, you know, after like a couple of years uh, doing it, looking into it, it turned out that it was not incentivizing the right audience. So basically, we were having more and more people who were just doing it for the money. And so when you do it for the money, then it actually doesn't work really well because it's just, you know, we are one of those products that they promote, um, you know, maybe next to some other products that, you know, they're just doing that for the the money. And that's fine. I respect that, absolutely. But for us, it was kind of driving some unqualified leads and it was not working. But that's not even the, the most interesting part. The most interesting part is that The truly ambassadors, the truly qualified users who were Loomly users, who were loving (laughs) Loomly, they were doing it for free. They saw the the ambassador program, the referral program. It was front and center on the dashboard, they didn't care about it. And so, So we kind of realized, okay, so we are paying people who drive bad traffic, not really paying, but they're still driving bad traffic, so it kind of hurts the metrics. And people who could drive good traffic, they don't want to do it. So, you know, it just doesn't work for us. And so we kind of discontinued it uh, last year. It was interesting. It was just not a great fit for us. So
0: is, is word of mouth still something that, that's that's working? So you, you have people, they become fans, they love the product, and then they're just telling other people about it, and, and that's another source of, of free referrals.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good thing and it's still happening a lot. And, and you know another thing is, we are a collaborative platform. So by nature, when you sign up and you wanna work with your team, you're going to invite your team. And so what we see a lot is, you know, sometimes someone is going to start using Loomly for their job, and then you know, they have a side project. And so you know, they will be able to use the same Loomly account for both because in loomly you can segment content by project or brand or whatever we we have a system of calendars each calendar being the equivalent of a spreadsheet which i was mentioning earlier so you can you know you can be invited to to use loomly at work and then you have a podcast that you, that you are you know developing or you have like an e-commerce brand that you're building Well, you can still use loomly and that's also you know this kind of Cross contamination, I would say. Uh, probably not a. That's that's a poor choice of word these days. But um, <laughs> I would say th- this virality is kind of you know how we 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 are also growing a lot.
0: Okay, so you know, you have an interesting story. I think the last five years when we sort of look at that and say you sort of with experienced this problem yourself with you and Noemi no- no- and 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 sort of you knew enough to be able to build a product. And once you got it out in front of people, they were excited about it, even though it didn't do much at the time. And the feedback that you got from the customers has helped you to shape this and the making the bet in terms of the content marketing has has really helped to to sort of drive that growth. Is there and you look over the last five years, is there anything you you wish maybe you had done differently? maybe that could have avoided you some, some pain along the way.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, I think, I, I believe I, I still make like so many mistakes every day. So, you know, it's just, uh, it's just kind of pick your poison. But um, yeah, I, I think, you know, to this day, one thing that, you know, I when I, in hindsight, when I, when I look back, one thing that we necessarily didn't do really well is that we try, we didn't try, we actually did. We kind of grew the team too fast in the early days, not necessarily like the early, early days, but as soon as we got some traction and, you know, we, we went from four persons to 10 in just a couple of months. And that, you know, for many companies, if you're a big company it's like, you know, maybe adding six persons to your team is not much, but, but when you're four and you had six person is a big change. And so you know we we really try to think about it and, and understand what happened because you know now we are seven we are probably four times bigger than we were at that time in terms of revenue but we are seven persons and so in hindsight when we when we keep thinking about it what we realize is that we had this very implicit culture like like you mentioned a couple of times this is a, a company that i co-founded with my spouse noemi so we knew each other before you know starting the company and the first two engineers you know, who joined us full-time, who were kind of, you know, the first uh, team members, they were friends of mine before we started working together. And so the four of us, you know, we were working very well together, but we had this kind of implicit culture where we we were just operating in sync and we didn't even know why. Uh, and we, we were not even realizing that it was working that well. So then, you know, we started hiring more people. And we had like our very first hire was extremely successful because this person is still with us. So we kind of, you know, I I don't want to say that we let our guard down, but we kind of thought that it was standard. And so then we, you know, we kept hiring more, more team members. And then that's when we realized that, you know, we had to make our expectations very clear. We had to have some processes in place to explain what we were expecting and how things were working because maybe people who were just joining us and people that we didn't know before and who didn't know us before could not guess what we wanted and where this becomes interesting is that you know it's good to have a cultural deck and it's good to to say here is you know here are our values and here is you know how we work but you know if you don't understand if you're not even aware of what the fundamentals of your culture are, then you're not going to be able to scale because, or you're going to change your culture and maybe that's how you're going to hit a wall. I don't know. That's how we see it now uh, inside.
0: Is that one of the reasons that you're, you're still a fairly small team? Has it been some reluctance to, to start to grow again?
1: I don't think it's a reluctance because we actually have four positions open. (laughs) So we are, you know, we are we are hiring, we have a lot of work to do, we have great projects. It's just, you know, for a while we just didn't see the need. And so like I, you know, we don't see ourselves as we don't measure our success by our headcounts. So we don't want to just hire to look bigger. We want to hire when we need, you know, talent. Uh, and these days, that's that's where we are. Uh, so I, I would say it's just more pragmatic. We we, we don't we don't feel like we've been burned. We just feel like, you know, we just need to think a bit more about it.
0: All right. Uh, it's time to wrap up. So let's get on to the lightning round. I'm going to ask you seven quickfire questions. Just try to answer them as quickly as you can. Sure. All right. Are you ready? Yes, sir. Okay. What's the best piece of business advice you've ever received?
1: Listen to your customers.
0: What book would you recommend to our audience and why?
1: How to Influence and Influence People because it's just it, it's just teaching you empathy.
0: What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder?
1: Persistence.
0: Persistence. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit?
1: The Gmail snooze button.
0: I love that. <laughs> What's a, a new or crazy business idea you'd love to pursue if you had the extra time?
1: I would love to build something that helps people in general and youngsters in particular to live study and work abroad i was born and raised in france i interned in dubai i studied in canada and now i live in the us those international experiences have just shaped my life and who i am now and i think it's just it's literally mind-blowing and it helps with tolerance which is probably much needed these days
0: Yeah, I love that. My family used to move around a lot. My father was an international banker. And I think uh, I'd been to like 14 schools by the time I was 16. So you get very used to change and meeting new people and adapting. But I also sometimes feel jealous of the people who can still in touch with their childhood (laughs) friends and everything. Because it's like, oh, I don't have that. Anyway, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know?
1: Um, Noemi and I traveled around the world for one year.
0: Nice. And finally, what's one of your most important passions outside of your work?
1: Cooking. I'm French.
0: You're French, of course. What else? (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, great. So if people want to find out more about Loomly, they can go to loomly.com. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Uh, They can shoot me an email. It's thibaud, T-H-I-B-A-U-D, at loomly.com. Uh, They can find me on Twitter, on LinkedIn. I'm always happy to help in any way that I can.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Tiwa. It's been a great conversation, and uh, I wish you and the team the best of success.
1: Thank you for having me, Omer. Best uh, best of luck uh, with your show.
0: Thank you. Cheers.